The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. Consumers are looking for brands they trust during trying times, brands that they know have the protocols in place to make sure they're serving them safe food in a convenient, affordable way, brands that they have an affinity for. You know, you look for comfort food when you're stressed, and you look for those comfortable brands that you've always had a great relationship with. That's David Gibbs, CEO of Yum! Brands, the American fast food giant that operates well-known brands including KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell, to name a few. Welcome to Magellan in the Know. In this episode, David talks with Magellan's chairman and chief investment officer, Hamish Douglas, about Yum's rise and how it continues to identify opportunities and build a world with a little more Yum. David Gibbs has risen through Yum's ranks over the decades, most recently as president and COO of Yum Brands. When he was promoted to CEO in early 2020, he was soon face-to-face with a worldwide pandemic. We'll hear how Yum! and its 51,000 restaurants in 150 countries successfully navigated the global shutdown. We'll hear too how a constant focus through David's and his predecessor's stewardship over the years has been its people, culture and growth. First, a warm welcome from Hamish Douglas. Firstly, I'd like to welcome you to In The Know. Uh, Today, I think, is going to be one of my favourite interviews. For many people who have followed Magellan and followed me, they probably know I love fast food. And I'm here today with David Gibbs, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Yum! Brands. Yum! Brands is an investment we've held for over 14 years uh, now and has just been a tremendous success and we've made our investors, a ton of money through our investment in Yum! Brands. But it's a company, notwithstanding we've been here for 14 years, the outlook for the company is as promising today as it was 14 years ago. So, David, firstly, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of In The Know. Oh, it's great to be on with you, Hamish, and we appreciate all that support over the 14 years and glad we've done well by you and our other investors and very excited about the future for Yum! as we move forward. Well, it's great to have you here, David. I normally always start with a bit of a personal question. You know, really just a bit of a background on yourself, where you grew up, maybe your professional background, and and what was your journey to becoming the CEO of Yum! Brands? Sure. I'm actually a New Yorker. So I was born in New York City in the United States, grew up and went to school into the Northeast and was always interested in uh, math and the financial markets, actually. I was was interested in your profession for quite a while. I got an engineering degree in college in applied mathematics, which I think has served me well later in life because a lot of that is about uh, evaluating risk and taking calculated risks that make sense. In fact, my senior thesis in college was uh, doing a computer simulation of blackjack and how the odds changed as you increase the number of decks in the shoe. Um, So I think about that a lot as we make decisions about entering new countries and expanding our brands and what are the risks and are they calculated risks that are worth taking. 
But my first job was in Solomon Brothers in New York City on the trading desk for mortgage-backed bonds. And that was a dynamic environment that I learned a lot about how markets price securities, which is, I think has also been an experience that's helped me later in life. But after that, uh, after some time in business school, it was all on at PepsiCo. Got hired by PepsiCo, basically into a training program, into the finance and real estate function. I ended up spending the first half of my career at PepsiCo, which ultimately became Tricon Restaurants and then Yum Brands. I spent the first half of my career on the real estate side. I, I had an affinity for it. I really enjoyed it. And I love the fact that it was all about growth. You know, when you're expanding our footprint, you're growing the brand. It's one of the two primary ways we grow the business, grow the sales in our existing units and then grow the number of stores we have. So that first half of my career was all in the real estate function, you know, working on all of our brands. And then the second half of my career at Yum, the second part of those 32 years, was more in general management. I had some CFO positions, ran different parts of the business internationally, ultimately was at one point the CEO of the pizza business. And then more recently, as you know, became the CFO of Yum. And then back in January of 2020, I had the privilege to take over as CEO. So it's been an amazing journey uh, and it's all been marked by growth, as you said at the start. Our brands are all 60 plus years old, but they all have amazing growth ahead. So they're in many ways just getting started on their journey. And it's very interesting, David, your background's slightly different to the last uh, two chief executives. David Novak, who was famous for the yum cheer and, and really culture. And, and then a, a great Australian, Greg Creed, who's a friend of mine and was very much on the marketing side of the business and the brands and so forth. But you're bringing a very mathematical, very analytical, very financially driven. And we'll talk about where acquisitions you made in the digital space and things. And I think this is becoming a very data-driven business as well and a very precise business. And maybe it just shows the evolution of the business, very driven from marketing-led CEOs who did great jobs to now a very sort of analytical and data and digital-driven framework as well. That's exactly right. In fact, Greg and I talked about that a lot as the transition was unfolding and how my skill set was well-suited for the challenges that we're going to have ahead and the stuff that I'm passionate about. But I will say, whether it's David Novak, Greg Creed, or myself, we have some very common themes in terms of what's important to us, and that is people and culture and growth and protecting these great brands and growing them around the world. Yum! has always been a people-first company. Our business is so people-dependent. We have one and a half million employees around the world. And the culture that we've created at Yum!, starting with David Novak, uh, has been our huge differentiator for us in terms of the talent we're able to attract and the ability to work collaboratively with our franchisees. David, Greg, and I share all of those common traits around people, culture, and growth. And then we bring our own set of skills to the challenges that the business is facing at different points in time. Well, you probably didn't realise it at the time, David, but you really, you took over on the 1st of January 2020 and what a baptism of fire it was. You know, there was an outbreak of COVID starting in China that many of us didn't realise what was really going on. But as we got into sort of March last year, the world just change for everyone. And you're operating a restaurant company. And actually, we weren't worried normally about any sort of economic downturn with a business like yours. But we didn't really think about all your restaurants or many of your restaurants being closed. And of course, you were fairly leveraged in your business. So what were your priorities? You had employees, you had suppliers, you had franchisees, you had debt providers 
uh, here as well. And the amount of red lights that must have gone off on monitors <laughs> internally must have been extraordinary. So how did you deal with that situation? Yeah, it certainly wasn't uh, what I thought I had signed up for in 2019. We were coming off of a record year at Yum. We had opened over 2,000 net new units. All of our businesses were you know, performing well. We were excited about the future. We had just announced an acquisition, the Habit Burger Grill, that you know we were excited about closing later in 2020. I took over, and it was actually you know pretty calm waters at the time, and things changed rather rapidly. Probably we had a little bit more of a warning about what was coming because of our huge presence in China. And obviously the management team we have on the ground there was giving us updates about how COVID was playing out in their world. So we were faced and dealing with some of these challenges maybe a little bit earlier than you might have thought. For example, in January, one of the first decisions I had to make as CEO is whether we go forward with a meeting we had planned in Singapore for 1,500 people, franchisees from around the world, representing 100 countries. And honestly, it was the first tough decision I had to make that, you know, the virus hadn't really spread to too many places, but we could see that that was a possibility. We made the call to err on the side of caution and cancel that meeting. I actually got a lot of grief for it at the time from a lot of our team, thinking that I was being overly cautious. I'm quite glad we didn't get 100 countries all together in February for that meeting. So... But from there, things started coming at us rapidly, and uh, we really had to pivot quickly. It's amazing what people can do in a crisis. We often talk about crisis-like collaboration, bringing out the best of people. I may rename that you know, COVID-like collaboration, because in COVID, our teams uh, did some amazing things in record time. Uh, we quickly had to establish you know, a more centralized approach to running the business, you know, being a long-time investor, that we run the business in a fairly decentralized way, letting a lot of our countries and markets around the world make key local decisions. And that's been a hallmark of our success, that we adapt to local tastes and can grow faster than others because we don't run the business in a bureaucratic way. Well, that wouldn't necessarily work in COVID. We had to provide, for example, a way to support our franchisees around the world, and we didn't want each one of our business units developing that way. We came up with one way to speed that process, but that would also apply to all the precautions we were taking in restaurant, how we were enhancing our safety protocols, you name it, figuring out which restaurants needed to close, which ones could stay open. So it was a lot of rapid-fire decisions, and a lot of it was actually about pivoting the business in a direction we were already heading, but just accelerating that journey. So off-premise became very important very quickly, and in fact, people wanted what our Chinese business had created, which was a contactless way to do off-premise. So we rolled that out in record time, enabling the technology to handle that. We talk about it, it probably was a project that in the old days would have been a six-month project in a lot of our businesses, and in some cases it was done in two or three weeks. And the whole thing was marked by an amazing pivot by our teams. It's when culture and talent really come to the fore, when if your teams are energized, working together collaboratively, it's amazing what you can do. And you saw that in the early days of the pandemic, how quickly we had pivoted to protect our employees, protect our, the communities that we serve. Very proud of how we got through those early days and then built on it to strengthen the business over time. And David, do you think it's been an accelerant of the business in terms of uh, what we're seeing is digital sales uh, are up dramatically and they haven't fallen back. You would have expected as we open up economies, maybe people's behaviour will go back to what it was before, but the digitalization of orders and, and delivery and other things has really moved up a, quite a few steps from where it was pre-pandemic. Do you think this 
may have benefited the business in terms of bringing forward a vision of how consumers interact with the brands? No doubt. It's well said. You know, we had a roadmap for what we wanted to do on the technology front that we were working on, you know, well before the pandemic hit. And really the only thing that's changed is everything we were working on that we thought was four or five years out just happened overnight and accelerated that roadmap. We were thankful that we had made the investments in people and technology so that when we needed to step on the accelerator, we could do so. And certainly I think the business has proven to be more resilient than anybody might have thought and better suited for these times than you could possibly imagine. So there's a lot of optimism about the way the technology is now enabling our business to be an even more attractive option for consumers. You said it just a second ago, the number is actually 20 billion. Our trailing 12 months, as we talked about in our last earnings call, our trailing 12 month digital sales are over 20 billion. And that number continues to grow, despite the fact that in some parts of the world, things are getting a little bit closer back to normal and people are returning back to the dining rooms. We're not seeing a real drop off in people using digital. No surprise, because it's a better way to interact with our brands. It's easier for the consumers, easier for us, it's more accurate. We know that our satisfaction scores go up when people use our digital technology to access the brand and pay for their orders. And how are you sort of reading the state of the consumer at the moment? Is it different in different places around the world? Does it matter if you're in lockdown, you're not in lockdown? How much stimulus it was? What's the sort of regional view you're getting on the health of the consumer? It is a hard one to sort of paint in a broad picture because it varies so much depending on where you are in the world. Developed markets, emerging markets. Developed markets tend to be performing better than emerging markets. That's not a surprise. They're a little bit better able to handle these kinds of challenges. I think what it comes down to is really two factors. The the health of the brand in a particular country and then the role that the government's playing. When it comes to the health of the brand, Consumers are looking for brands they trust during trying times, brands that they know have the protocols in place to make sure they're serving them safe food in a convenient, affordable way, brands that they have an affinity for. You know, you look for comfort food when you're stressed, and you look for those comfortable brands that you've always had a great relationship with. Our brands generally around the world are incredibly well-regarded and meet that hurdle. But even within our brands, you know, we have various strength levels at different countries. So we've seen that play out where we're the most trusted brand, we do better. Then on the government side, you've got, you know, how the government has handled the stimulus. That's not just quarantines and lockdowns and closing dining rooms. Of course, that has a huge impact on our business and the consumer. But, you know, it's also stimulus, whether they're providing money into the economy. We're seeing that, obviously, in a huge way in the United States. And just on that, David, can you actually see literally weekly when the stimulus checks land, you can actually see the impact almost immediately with your consumers? Absolutely. You know what? And that's not really a new phenomenon. We know, for example, in the U.S., people typically get paid on the 1st and the 15th of every month. So when we plan our sales and our staffing levels in our restaurant, depending on the brand, it's more severe in some than others, we will plan for increased sales on those days as people get paychecks deposited. So of course, given the size of some of these checks that the government has issued, that's going to have an outsized impact on our sales, and we're seeing that. But there are other ways that governments around the world are helping consumers, and we're also seeing the benefits in other countries outside the U.S. So really, those two factors are driving you know, how the consumer is behaving around the world. One of the great benefits of being part of Yum! is we're sharing what we're learning as we go through this across countries and how to react to that. 
A small example of that is very early on when the pandemic hit, the party size increased dramatically as people were taking orders home to their families. So we rolled out larger offerings for consumers that would give them more of a family offering. And that you know, worked well at KFC, which where a bucket of chicken is perfectly designed for that. It worked well at Pizza Hut. And then at a brand like Habit, which was new to our portfolio, we shared that know-how with them. And they immediately rolled out a family offering of four burgers and fries and some drinks at a compelling price point. And that immediately had an impact on their business. So... One of the great things about Yum is our ability to share those ideas around the world. And that's part of the reason why we bought something like The Habit, knowing that we could add a lot of value in that regard. Yeah, well, I'm quite excited by The Habit. It's small. We may come and talk about that if we've got some time near the end. I do want to talk about the scale of your business and development. You were on the property side of the business. You've got 51,000 restaurants globally, which is absolutely staggering. And you've just upgraded your sort of medium-term outlook for openings of new restaurants. I think you're now sitting at, is it 4 to 5% a year? That's right. And that's talking at two to 2,500 net new restaurants a year. It's mind-blowing to think about that scale of restaurant openings. That's over five a day that you're talking about to open. So how do you think about restaurant development? You have to involve franchisees. You're not opening themselves. There's I don't know, 160 countries or or so forth. How do you get your mind around the opportunity and the scaling of that amount of restaurants each year? Yeah. First of all, it's very exciting what's happening with development. 2019 was a record year. We thought we were on pace for another record in 2020 until the pandemic hit. But it's great to see the business back on track in 2021. And who would have thought when the pandemic hit, we'd be taking our new unit guidance up, you know, within less than a year of the pandemic. In terms of how we think of development, to me, it's probably the single biggest indicator of the health of a business. And I say that because, particularly in a model like ours, franchisees are putting their money at risk to build new units. All of our development, for the most part, occurs with franchisee capital, or the vast majority of it. So if the unit economics aren't there, if the brands aren't strong, if the brands don't have a bright future with good cash paybacks for franchisees, because that's how they think about it. How much cash do I put out and how quickly am I going to get it back? Then you're not going to get any development. And we talked earlier about how we've gotten stronger and more resilient through this pandemic. You know, the best sign of that is that franchisees are putting their money at risk to grow our brands around the world. I also think there's two ways to grow a business like ours. One is to grow same-store sales growth and the other one is to grow net new units. We don't want to choose. We want to grow in both of those because I think they work together in a fairly synergistic fashion. You know, when your sales are growing, your unit economics improve, so you build more units. The more units you build, the more marketing dollars that you're contributing to grow sales, and it just keeps going back and forth in a very positive way. So that's what you're seeing around the world. And yeah, you talk about building two, two and a half thousand units, as you mentioned. You know, that's a two to three billion dollars worth of additional sales that we're adding into the business every year. We're actually building more units than that because that's the net new unit number. On a gross basis, we're building well over 3,000 units at these numbers. So those other units that are oftentimes replacing stores that were in the wrong spot that needed to be closed, those other units are actually enhancing our sales as well with incremental sales versus the units they replaced. And David, you're now rolling out Taco Bell internationally. It's had some checkered stops and starts in the past, but I noted that Spain's now got to 100 units, which is kind of a critical 
Mass, are you using existing franchisees in Spain from KFC or somewhere to do that? Getting to 100 units in a short period of time is almost a record for a new brand. Often it takes a decade to sort of get to 100 units with a brand in a new country. How do you accelerate something like a Taco Bell to get to that critical mass much quicker than brands would usually get to a critical mass in a country? Well, certainly the network of great franchisees we have at KFC and Pizza Hut around the world are an advantage for us. These are usually incredibly well capitalized, great brand builders, great operators, and they see the opportunity with Taco Bell and the white space there. So to answer your question, it's a mix of uh, some of those franchisees as well as uh, some new partners from outside the Yum! system that understand the Taco Bell brand and the opportunity we have around the world. As you mentioned, in some cases, we've you know entered countries in the past, and that hasn't worked out, but then we've gone right back in more recently and had great success. So a lot of this is just the execution and how the brand has gotten stronger over the years. In this global, digitally connected world, you may not ever live anywhere near a Taco Bell, but through social media and other means, you know a lot about the brand, and you know the success it has in the United States, and you're eager to try it whenever it comes to your market. So we're not starting from scratch when we try to get to 100 units. We're starting with some major assets because we're yum. The franchise networks that we have, the supply chain networks that we have, the social media presence that our brands have in the big markets where they operate, and you highlighted Spain. There's a great success story in Spain about us getting to 100 units. But the same kind of thing is happening in other markets around the world. In the UK, for example, the brand has really taken off just in the last couple of years, and we're really on a huge growth trajectory there. So Taco Bell International is a big part of the Yum! growth story, and we're really just getting started there. We touched earlier on digital and the acceleration. You're saying 20 billion annualized digital sales at the moment, which is a staggering number of buckets of chicken and burritos and pizzas being ordered. It's easy to say digital, but digital is a multifaceted game. It could be digital orders in your app of order in advance and pick up on arrival. It can be digital that's delivery. How do you mold the whole thing together? And when we maybe talk about delivery, how do you get the placements on the delivery platforms that you get the velocity that you're looking for and you get the data that you need to keep enhancing the consumer experience because obviously the delivery platforms for smaller players don't want to give away their data and you pay a lot to get any sort of ranking. So how do you think about digital both in sort of on your own app where you maybe order in advance and, and maybe on those digital platforms? It's a complex game here. Truly complex. We have a few advantages. Number one, we started with the Pizza Hut brand that has been in the digital and delivery business for a very long time and really one of the leading restaurant delivery companies in the world and doing our own self-delivery. So we actually, in many ways, probably know more about delivery than almost all of the aggregators. That's worked to our advantage, understanding that space so well. The other advantage we have, of course, is our scale. So when you talk about negotiating deals with aggregators and making sure you have access to data and terms that are competitive that and actually best in industry, I think our team has done an amazing job of really thinking through a strategic approach to how we want to work with aggregators. You saw that early on as we struck a partnership with one of the aggregators, Grubhub in the United States. You know, those were on very favorable terms, and it sort of set the tone for us in terms of how we were going to interact with aggregators around the world. And I'm pleased to say 
that we've been able to follow through on that. So the relationships with the aggregators are good, they're on terms that work for us, and then we're also expert on self-delivery through the Pizza Hut experience on how consumers want to interact with apps, loyalty programs, you name it. So all of that know-how sharing, as we call it, is going on all around the world. But it's not easy. It's complex. We've got a lot more work to do. You saw we just announced an acquisition of a company called Dragon Tail that is soon to close. We've done a number of other acquisitions in this space. All of that is designed to give us a true competitive advantage when it comes to technology and the best-in-class experience for consumers. And David, how would you rate where you're up into loyalty in terms of integrating loyalty? We've got three large investments in the QSR space. One would be Starbucks, Yum and McDonald's. I would say in terms of loyalty, I would probably regard Starbucks as best in class at the moment. I'd probably put Yum second in class and I'd probably put McDonald's third in class in terms of integrating loyalty. Starbucks is easier because most of their restaurants are company owned, so you don't have to get into the franchise discussion about who pays for it if somebody turns up and how all that works and getting all your franchisees involved. We all know when they operate really well, you get higher baskets, more frequency and things with proper loyalty. How far are you along that journey with your brands on loyalty within your digital apps? Look, I think we have have some good successes in certain parts of the world. As you mentioned, Taco Bell, for example, in the U.S. has done a great job of launching a loyalty program and really seeing customer purchase behavior change as a result for the better. And we have lots of examples of that in different markets around the world. But loyalty and everything in tech and really in everything in our business, we're never satisfied with where we are. So you're never going to get me to say we're doing a great job, we're number one, and we've solved that problem. These are continuous journeys. We know that as the consumers move to digital ordering and digital pay, loyalty is an amazing way to interact with them, make them stickier to our business, and give them exactly what they want from the experience with us. So it's a big part of our roadmap as we go forward. And we're really in the early innings of what loyalty can do for Yum. I think there's a lot more there that will have a hugely positive impact on our business. And everybody in the industry is obviously leaning in in this area. Yeah. You talked early on on the acquisition you made of Habit there. Obviously, the burger space is a highly competitive space. What's the unique attributes about the Habit brand and, and offering that attracted you to Habit? And kind of what's the sort of growth strategy. You know, it's, it's not that big at the moment. It was largely company owned. You bring the franchising model there. So what is the brand attributes in the space that differentiates sort of habit from a lot of the other burger chains that are out there in the US? When we think about acquisitions, obviously we don't want to you know, spend our time on anything that doesn't have a huge payoff. So I describe it as let's not buy anything if we don't think it can at least be 10,000 restaurants around the world, because we think in that kind of scale. So that's the first screen when you think about somebody like The Habit. Does it have the ability to be a big chain in the U.S. and outside the U.S.? It's already got a presence outside the U.S. and China and Cambodia, so they're off to a good start. So that was attractive to us. As far as the category that it's in, you know, I think of burgers as having really two components to it. There's the traditional QSR burger players, and then there's what we would call better burgers, which is a little bit of an upgraded burger experience. Habit clearly falls into the latter But even more so, Habit's not just a burger chain. The burger percentage of sales is lower than you might think. They sell chicken sandwiches, they sell tuna sandwich, they sell salads. They actually have some variety on their menu, and it's all sort of in that better category. 
So we believe habit really is designed for the future consumer, where consumers' tastes are going. We've seen a lot of success with them just in the year we've owned them. As you can imagine, closing on something like that on March 18th of 2020, you know, our hands were shaking while we were signing the documents, knowing that over 60% of their sales were in the store and that their dining rooms were basically going to be shut down in the U.S., But here we are a year and a half later, and they have pivoted. They've made up for all that sales and then some. You know, as I reported in the last earnings call, they're running positive on a two-year basis, even though they lost so much of those dine-in sales, uh, because it is one of those brands with a 60-year history that consumers trust and love. The food is right for the times. It's got good unit economics. You know, the other part about buying something like that is we don't want to buy anything we have to fix We want to buy something that is working well, but we know we can add huge value given our scale, our franchisee base. We've had a lot of the yum franchisees that wouldn't ever think of becoming a habit franchisee when it was a tiny little chain. But now that it's in the yum family, they're very attracted to becoming a habit franchisee because they know we're going to reduce the cost of sales using our scale. We're going to apply all of our know-how to expanding their footprint in the smartest way. And it's on its way to becoming a bigger concept and a bigger chain. And we're excited about it. Not the first year and a half that we thought we would have in ownership, but we've gotten to a good place and it's growing fast. Well, David, I've just noted that 10,000 store number down and I'm looking forward to the journey because there were some acquisitions in the past, pre your days that were made in China and some of those didn't work out. Well, you do have to get the unit economics right and that's what this is all about. Yeah, look, and the reality is, back to my comments about risk-taking earlier, Obviously, any acquisition is going to have some risk. There's no guarantee that they'll all work out. The other thing we liked about Habit is the risk-reward equation. You know, it was a relatively small acquisition in terms of what we paid for it and the size of the concept. So we didn't have to bet the house on making Habit work in order for Yum to work. But I think investors should think of it as, you know, a potential extra uh, way for us to really create value down the road. This is going to be a long journey. We're not going to see Habit paying off for Yum in the next year or two in terms of a meaningful way financially. But I think as good stewards of the business, building it for the long term, these are the kinds of risks we need to take. And you'll probably see us do a few others like this down the road if we continue to have success with Habit. Maybe I can move on, and maybe this is a slightly tougher question, but I think a very important question. On the ESG front, You know, Yum! does some wonderful things in terms of what it does in waste, what it does in taking plastics out of of straws and packaging waste in society. It's actually a great employer for people wanting their first jobs. You know, a lot of people do go and work in a Pizza Hut or a Taco Bell or a KFC when they're young, just like they do at McDonald's. And you get very involved in your local communities. Your franchisees get very involved in that. But, you know, you are selling fast food as well. And there have been some famous series done on obesity. It wasn't focused on you, but other players in the industry. So how do you sort of confront the health and wellness side of fast food? Does it come down to ingredients? Does it come down its individual choice? Uh, Is there things you can do to help on education here? Is it personal responsibility? How do you think about health and wellness as part of the ESG side of of investing in this for investors? I think what guides us at Yum! is what we call the recipe for growth and good. You've probably seen us talk about it. We have four pillars on the growth side around brand building, development, operations, and then people and culture. 
Those four pillars, if you ask anybody at Yum, what are they working on in their market, they're going to put that in the context of that framework. At the same time, it's the recipe for growth and good. There's a good component to our strategy, and that is what we're doing around food, people, and planet. And these two things work together. They're not distinct. You don't have growth without good. You don't have good without growth. Um, they both support each other. And you've seen us lean in to telling the story about the good that we're doing in the communities that we serve around the world. One example of that was what we did on the people front on the good side with our commitment to invest $100 million to unlocking opportunity and investing in creating pathways for team members to become franchisees, as you mentioned, but also the things that we're doing to support organizations like 110, which is creating a number of jobs for black leaders without four-year degrees. So we go on and on about all the different components of the things we're doing on each one of the pillars on growth and good. But as far as what we're doing in terms of the food part and you know, how we're making sure that we have balanced offerings for consumers, I think that's always been our hallmark. I mean, I've been with the company for 32 years, and for me, if I put on a few pounds, I go back to eating three crunchy tacos for lunch because that's 500 calories or so, and it's a great meal, it's filling, and it's a great option that we offer at Taco Bell. And if I want to be you know, extra careful, I get it al fresco, which substitutes pico for some of the cheese. So we have offerings across all of our brands that consumers can access to give them ways to eat in a more balanced way from Yum, and we have indulgent offerings, and I think that's a hallmark of a great company, giving consumers choice and giving consumers the things they want. Certainly on the food side, there's a big part of this about the way consumers' tastes are changing. That's why you saw us strike this partnership with Beyond Meat for plant-based meat options. That's proving, obviously, to be a very successful, timely partnership. We love Ethan Brown and his team, and we're starting to roll that out around the world and starting to see really great results. So I'm excited about what we can do, and I'm never daunted by consumers changing taste because you don't survive for 60 years without uh, being in a kind of organization that pivots to meet those changes, and nobody should be better in the world at pivoting to meet those changes. Well, thank you for that. But there are some wonderful things that you do on the ESG side of things, and that was good to outline that. Another issue, I think, when it goes to the brand is food safety. At the end of the day, a number of years ago, Chipotle, which is one of your competitors in the Mexican side of the business, suffered some very serious food safety issues, which caused material damage to their brand, certainly in the shorter term. You know, you're running a largely franchised operation. You're not control of exactly what's happening in store in the restaurants. How do you deal with the food safety to ensure you don't want a series of franchisees doing something that could damage the brand for all your other franchisees in a, in a country? So how big an issue is this for the brand owner? Certainly, there's no bigger issue than ensuring that the food we serve our customers is safe. And as you can imagine, we take it very seriously and spend a lot of time talking about it and refining our processes. You know, a couple of things on food safety. Number one, I'm a very competitive person, but I do not view food safety as an area we want to be competitive with the, the rest of the industry on. In fact, we'll have people in the industry come to us and ask us to help them on food safety and share what we know, because as the world's largest restaurant company by footprint, we know a lot more than most. So we want to see the industry be a safe industry that consumers trust. Otherwise, we all suffer. 
as far as what we do on food safety, it's all about suppliers and it's all about the restaurants. And we do, as you mentioned, do frequent audits in both cases to make sure we understand what's going on. We have a large team of people and a chief food safety officer that runs that entire organization and partners with our franchisees to ensure that everybody's meeting our standards. And by the way, our standards are, in most cases, more stringent than what the local health codes would require. An example of that is on hand washing. You know, after you wash your hands in our restaurants, you then sanitize them. Most health departments don't require that. That's something we've had in place for a very long time. As you can imagine, in a COVID environment, you know, I was really pleased to know, because I've been in the business for 32 years, I know what goes on in our restaurants. I was comforted by the fact that all we have standards like that that are higher, that were perfect for those times. And I think in many ways, going back to the issue of why do consumers trust us? Because we've been brands you can trust over all these years because we do things like that. So nothing more important than food safety. It's not something you're going to hear us talk about on earnings calls typically, but I think our team does an amazing job. In so many ways, we're an industry leader. There's a lot of talk about inflation in the supply chain at the moment and in wages. Obviously, you and the franchisee have been increasing in the US minimum wages, some of it state mandated, some of it voluntary by People obviously pressure in the supply chain around packaging and other commodity costs. Do you think we're in a really abnormal time? Are you preparing yourself for more permanent inflation? Do you think this is sort of associated with the pandemic? Do you think it's more transitory? And how easily can Yum and its franchisees really adapt to this type style of inflation? Is it relatively easy to price if it's more permanent from your point of view? Yeah, look, as far as predicting where we're going with inflation, certainly we're feeling the effects of inflation in a lot of markets today. Whether that is transitory or will end up being something more permanent, I honestly don't know. It does feel like it's going to be a pressure on the business. But the good news is how easily we can pivot to react to it. We have uh, great value offerings at current prices, but we have the ability to take price and pass along the cost of inflation. We've seen that over time. We've actually done a study that showed typically in the QSR industry, players can pass along inflation and completely cover the cost of it. Now, if you get hit with a sudden surge, that's going to be harder to do that. But if we have time, the industry tends to be a fairly resilient industry, as do our brands. I do also think that there's some positives in terms of minimum wages in a lot of parts of the world increasing as a result of inflation. First of all, we want our team members to make good wages, and we know that when team members and their peers are making more money, that they're spending more money in our restaurants. And I think we were talking earlier about stimulus uh, helping our restaurants in this environment. I also think rising wages are helping our business as more people can afford our food. You know, we often say, you know, in a country, if you can't afford to eat at one of our brands with one hour of minimum wage labor, then we're going to have a tough go. But if you can afford to spend your one hour of earnings and get a nice meal with us, that's probably a good sign that the market is ready for us to enter. So I do think it's an inflationary environment. Not sure how long it's going to last, but the hallmark of Yum and our brands has been 60 years of pivoting to meet challenges like that. And not at all daunted by what that means for us. And in some ways, there's some positives in that. Yeah, and to put it in context, David, you know, if wages typically at a restaurant would make up 25 to 30% of the costs, 
a 15% wage rise, you probably need a 3 to 4% price change and you've fully recovered that one-off thing. So you need to scale some of this in, in terms of 15% in wages doesn't mean a 15% price rise at the thing and then you've got mix issues and how you manage the menu and so forth. And the other issue, people have to remember you're a franchise company any increase in the top line through inflation, you actually collect a royalty over that. So at the whole code level, it's a, it's not the world's worst outcome if there's a little bit of inflation in the world from a yum perspective. It's certainly true from a yum perspective, but what keeps me up at night is our franchisees' unit economics. It all really starts with them. But what I was trying to say, they don't need a huge price change in order to keep That's right. to keep the profitability at the franchisee level. They can recover those price changes with relatively modest menu pricing and maintain their economics. Yeah, I think you said it well. And then you think about if that employee now has 15% more money in their pocket, but the prices only rose 3%, obviously they're not going to be against going back to eating at our restaurants. It's still going to be a value for them. And I don't think anyone's talking about then wages going up at 15% per annum. I think a large jump like that is maybe a one-off change in the relativity of pay there. and, And that's not that difficult to recover. Maybe I want to end with one final question. We've been through an incredibly challenging 18 months and we're still going through it. You know, COVID is still here. You've still got many restaurants around the world that are still closed or operating in in limited environments, notwithstanding the company's performance is terrific. Um, You've just upgraded your guidance in terms of new store openings. You know, what are you most optimistic about as you think about the future here, David? Truly, if you look across our business, I'm optimistic on all fronts. We've always had great brands, but those brands in this environment have proven to be even more resilient and have been proven to be brands that customers flock to in times of uncertainty. Our culture and talent, which we talk about all the time to investors, but sometimes their eyes glass over and they just want to hear about the financials. But our culture and talent is a huge advantage for our business. We're able to attract and retain people in a way that our competitors in most cases cannot. Uh, we saw that being a huge advantage for us in this environment as well. You know, just to pick one area, the culture that we have with our franchisees and the collaboration. You saw other chains have challenges on that front. I'm so proud of the relationships we've built with our franchisees around the world, how we were there for them during these challenging times and how they partnered with us and how quickly we've recovered as evidenced by the way they're back building stores. Our scale advantage, that's not going away with the announcement about the increase in the pace of development. You're going to see even more units developed and our scale advantage is going to continue to grow. You know, when I started 32 years ago, scale didn't mean much. Each restaurant had its own like cash register and it wasn't connected to anything. Uh, so there was no reason to scale technology. But today, that is a massive advantage when it comes to the things we can buy and then scale across our business and provide to our franchisees at the lowest possible cost. Uh, So the pandemic has just made us stronger, as optimistic as I was January 2020 when I stepped into the CEO role. I'm just that much more optimistic today, and uh, I know we have a lot of growth ahead of us. We've only scratched the surface in parts of the world. Your listeners would be well served to get out and see some of our businesses in emerging markets where we dominate and where yet we still have a massive opportunity for growing our footprint. I see it, you know, in my travels and I see the enthusiasm from our franchise partners and our team and I couldn't be more excited about the future for Yum. Well, David Gibbs, thank you very much for spending this time uh, with myself and our listeners and 
to you and the whole team, thank you for everything, for what you do. You know, it is a great business with a great future. We've been very happy shareholders and I expect we're going to be very happy shareholders for a long time to come. Well, thank you, Hamish. Thank you for having me on and greatly appreciate the support from you and your team Uh, over these 14 years. It's been a great partnership. That was David Gibbs, CEO of Yum Brands, talking with Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening.